Welcome back to another exciting episode of Reading Rainbow. Today we will be continuing our exploration of the history of the Americas. We started off very early in about 200 BC. We've now moved up to roughly 1400 BC. This brings us back to the century that Christopher Columbus expectantly found the New World and given credit for it. Though did he really find the New World, or did he just find continent or islands of Central America? The credit for the discovery of America goes to Columbus, whereas through history and research we have found that that is not necessarily the case. Let us continue on our journey through time to figure out who really found America. We are going to pick up our story with the islands in the mist. The search for the legendary islands has intrigued men from Plato's time to the present, but the fabled and exotic Lumuria, Atlantis, and St. Brendan's Land of Promise are yet to be discovered. In 1492, Christopher Columbus is known to have sailed the ocean blue. That most celebrated of adventurers was pragmatic enough to mount a complex expedition, an enterprising exercise in preparing for the unknown. He was also politically gifted enough to satisfy the aims of his backers while cleverly allaying the fears of his sailors. That fortuitous combination of virtues alone would not have enabled him to succeed had he not also been one of the greatest seamen of all time. According to his biographer, Samuel Eliot Morrison, but a journey into the dark regions far westward into the forbidding Atlantic must also have had, even for Columbus, the aura of a dream. Columbus most probably expected to encounter Inusla Antilia Septe Citades, Antilia, the Isle of the Seven Cities, on his route from the Canaries to the Indies. Scholars disagree over whether the Canary explorer believed he would also find St. Brendan's legendary land promised to the saints, which Prince Henry the Navigator, Portugal's indefatigable patron of maritime daring, had sent some of his restless seamen to locate in 1431. Predictably, there were those who believed that among the new lands discovered in the age of exploration was one that would vindicate the classical tales of the lost continent of Atlantis. Some speculated that the Canaries, the Azores, and other islands of the Atlantic were fragments of the vanished landmass. Others believed that the New World in its entirety was the long-lost site of the Atlantean civilization. The lack of factual evidence, however, did not deter cartographers from simply sketching in many of the fabled islands on the largely imaginative maps of the 15th century and later. Precise delineating positions. The busy nautical chart of 1424 positioned Antilia, meaning island opposite, westward of the Pillars of Hercules at the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea. 
it is shown as a rectangular island with its seven cities clearly indicated Ra Marnilio Sayadne and the like. The Pisigani chart of thirteen sixty seven shows the island of Maida Mon Mom which still appeared on a published map as late as 1841. In a Portuguese book of sailing directions dated 1514, the chapter goes on, Courses for the Islands Not Yet Discovered, gives instructions for finding the Septe Citades to the south of Newfoundland. Almost every 15th century chart of the Atlantic depicted the islands of Lobo and Capraria, reputedly discovered by St. Brendan. These islands were found on maps as late as the 18th century. It is all very well to say that cartographic standards were less restrictive in the days of the great maritime explorers. However, something other than the lack of accuracy is at work in the charts that purport to show the uncharted isles. Here be sea serpents, was the phrase every schoolchild saw in Renaissance mapmaking. In admonition that dark forces lurk in the unknown. On the other hand, the islands not yet discovered were drawn upon the map, give messages here also be paradises, as if the mind of man insists that the unknown holds bright and lovely secrets too. A most charming account of blessed islands beyond the watery horizon is the Navigato Sancti Brendani, the story of St. Brendan's voyage. Written perhaps as early as the 8th century, some 200 years after the Holy Father's death, the story became enormously popular all across Europe. It was translated into many languages and down through the centuries has been read with affection and wonder. The Celtic saint is an appealing figure quite apart from the poetic quality of many of his reported adventures. Evidently, more activists than mystic, he is known to have founded two monasteries in Ireland in the mid-6th century the more famous being Clonfort in country Galloway. Historians believe that he probably organized trips by boat to the Herbrides, western Scotland, and possibly to Wales and Britannia. But it is the Navigatio, an unlikely blend of the pious and the plucky that memorializes Brendan as both an epic hero and a saintly explorer. In another work on the life of Brendan, Vita Brendani, he is portrayed as a no-nonsense religious leader who operates with directness and resolve. When some of the monks traveling with him are at odds about whether an object in the distance is a bird or a ship, Brendan says decisively, put an end to the discussion and turn the boat towards it. Did this admirable adventure actually make the extensive voyage described in the Navigatio? Since we know that the so-called Isle of St. Brendan 
and similar fantastic islands cannot have existed at least not in the locations ascribed to them in legend and cartography two possibilities seem likely these places are either stuff of fiction or they are actual locations not known under other names did the saint brendan of the navigatio sail only to imaginary lands that are accessible only to the pure in heart in a spiritually instructive tale or did he and his followers come upon a more earthly landfall such as the rocky shores of newfoundland or the sandy breaches of coral isles in the caribbean it can be argued that the navigatio leaves itself open to either interpretation as a brief summary of its narrative highlights illustrates in search of the land promised to the saints brendan departs from clonfort with seventeen monks in a curragh a characteristically irish boat made with a wooden frame covered with animal hides it probably had a square sail but oars were the main source of locomotion Traveling at an exhaustingly slow place, the expedition drifts to a steep rocky island, then to an isle teeming with large, pure white sheep. At Easter, the saint and his men mistakenly land on the back of a whale, which they take for an island. Just as they start a fire and are preparing breakfast, they feel the ground stir underfoot, and they scarcely have time to scramble back into the boat when the entire islet beers off and downward as the days drag on the group visits the island called paradise of birds where avian choirs are perpetually in their ears later they come to an island that seems to be a monastic hideaway where they break bread with a community of 24 then the holy travelers subject to the vagaries of tide and wind helplessly skirt danger and experience novel mysteries a fight between sea creatures a patch of water so clear that many kinds of fish can be seen moving on the bottom with flocks of sheep a huge crystal column with a canopy the color of silver and a rugged island covered with slag destitute of trees or grass on another day they see a high mountain rising from the sea smoke pouring from the summit in the seven years of this chronicle brendan's track would cross back upon itself often so that many of the islands were revisited at one point the horrified monks encountered judas iscarot enjoying a brief respite from his eternal punishment for the betrayal of yeshua finally saint brendan's patience and oft expressed faith in the will of god find fruition emerging from the mists of a thick cloud the band sees at last the land of promise bathed in a brilliant light it is unlike any island they visited during their grueling travels it was warm fruitful bathed in a seemingly endless autumn sunshine they disembarked and pushed up country for forty days viewing the landscape on all sides finally they stood on the bank of a great river which glided on into the interior brendan whose imminent death is prophesied by a handsome young man they meet there leads his followers home 
a chorus of birds, an encounter with a biblical character, these are elements of fabulous, or at least the metaphorical. But some interpreters have given the Navigatio a more serious reading. The crystal column is perhaps a poetic description of the great icebergs that loom up in the water west of Greenland. The smoking mountain might be the volcanic eruption of an island in the Arctic Ocean. The schools of fish in translucent water could be the coral landscapes of the Bahamas. The fog at journey's end brings to mind the fog off Newfoundland banks, and the broad expanses of that region, cut by a wide-flowing river, resemble the Navigatio's breathtakingly beautiful land of promise. Whether the islands of St. Brendan, where landfalls in the North Atlantic and Caribbean, or non-existent images of desire, they were a spur of exploration of the seas to the west. Perhaps Columbus was being proposably ambiguous when, casually referring to St. Brendan's alleged discoveries, he noted aboard ship in 1492 that there in lay the earthly paradise. Also fated to be lost in legend were the seven cities, which were as likely to be located in an imaginary Brazil as on the island of Antilia. The 1492 globe of Martin Beheim apparently gives the earliest acknowledgement of this tantalizing tale of escape. It is written on the globe that seven Portuguese bishops led Christian refugees to the island in flight from the Moorish occupation of the Iberian Peninsula, perhaps in 734 AD. A number of other sources report European contract with Antilia in the 15th century. In more than one story, a Portuguese ship is blown to the isle during a storm. The crew is astonished to find Portuguese-speaking natives. In one account, upon returning to the mainland, the crew discovers that the beach sand scooped up for use in their cook box sparkles with grains of gold. There are numerous references to the island throughout the Age of Exploration, a period of discovery that began about 1420 and ended some 200 years later. The references carry the trappings of romance rather than of fantasy, escape from religious persecution, transplanted civilizations in a strange land, the familiar behind the horizon, perhaps even a kind of nationalistic pride for the sea-going Portuguese. In short, there seemed no reason to suspect that the well-chronicled island refuge did not exist. As late as 1498, Pedro Ayala, a Spanish ambassador in England, reported to the court of Ferdinand and Isabella that for the past seven years, Bristol had dispatched from two to four ships a year in search of the island of Brazil and the seven cities. Neither as Brazil nor Antilia, however, has the Isle of the Seven Cities ever been found. It is not surprising that this vast body of documentation of non-existent islands leads only to more confusion, particularly in the matter of nomenclature. Today, Antilla's 
islands in the caribbean were so named because it was thought by many that columbus discovery of the west indies was actually the discovery of antilia some writers have mistaken references to the island of brazil to indicate the irish legend of enchanted island of high brazil or o brazil which is a kind of elysian fields that floats about the north atlantic Nonetheless, from the 14th through the 18th century, the island was supposedly glimpsed offshore by fishermen from Ireland's Arne Islands, seen by sailors coming round the Blaskets, and spotted in 1791 by an English sea captain. Professor Thomas J. Westrope of the Royal Irish Academy claimed to have sighted the fabled isle shimmering near the Irish coast in 1872. Part of the persistent appeal of this Gaelic legend may be that, to date, the tempting island has not yet been visited by man. There is some mystical boundary there. It is the land that we can sometimes see but never attain, not in this life. Yet, as Samuel Eliot Morrison has pointed out, attempts to find this land of promise has a practical result. Bristol merchants backed voyages to seek out High Brazil. These were to have a connection with John Cabot's discovery of North America in 1497. In a sense, High Brazil would be to Cabot what Antilia was to Columbus, the siren call of myth that would lead to major discovery in the real world. The islands of escape, of the miraculous, of the unattainable, these beloved European traditions are not so well known to contemporary readers on either side of the Atlantic. The seas are all too accurately charted in our century. Hi, and thank you for sticking around with us through our commercial break. We are now going to be moving on to the story of Atlantis and Lumuria. But there is another type of lost island that endures paradoxically because it is not simply lost, but vanished. It is easier to believe in because it is more difficult to find. Since its archetypal legend includes catastrophic destruction that would leave little evidence of the island's existence, such as a volcano erupting or the earth's crust splitting open and the billowing waters of the sea to be let rolled in, obliterating for all time a mighty civilization, so run the legends of Atlantis a mystery that has tantalized Western minds since Plato first wrote about it. Equally catastrophic are much of the later accounts of the popular Pacific counterpart of Atlantis, the continent of Lumuria, or Mu. There are those who believe that the remains of Atlantis have already been discovered. Of course, no inscriptions or currency attesting to its existence have been found or the news would have become one of our century's journalistic coups. But evidence of the final destruction of sophisticated urban centers before the time of Plato, the 4th century BC, has been found in more than one location. Principally, 
in the eastern end of the Mediterranean, to believe that one of these sites represents the Atlantis of legend is to believe that time, distance, narrative exaggeration, ambiguities of language, and man's credulity transformed a fairly minor local event into a disaster of global proportions. Even in Plato's day, the story was apparently not accepted as historical fact by other classical writers. The kingdom disappears in a single day and night of misfortune in Plato's Timaeus. But no such kingdom and no such event are chronicled in any earlier historical or mythological writings known to us. In the uncompletable Critias, Plato furnished a detailed description of an ancient metropolis that, metropolis that under the patronage of Greek god of sea, Poseidon, was distinguished by great wealth, extraordinary achievement in engineering and administration, splendid architecture, and a strong commitment to virtue. His pupil, Aristotle, however, commented on Atlantis with what must have been a touch of irony, saying that he who created it also destroyed it. It is the Cretius that we read that Zeus decided to punish Atlantis when the citizenry began to behave themselves unseemingly, taking the infection of wicked coveting and pride of power. Whether destroyed by Zeus or Plato or natural agency, Atlantis survived, even thrived, in the lore and literature of the West. The drawn of the Age of Exploration reawakened worldwide interest in the tale, and theorists combined the discovery of the day with the stories in the Bible. Ancient writing, mythology, and archaeological lore. As a result, Atlantis was sighted in almost every part of the globe, under sea or in the desert atop mountains or beneath the rubble of ruined cities. Nearly 50 major locations have been defended with varying degrees of heat or playfulness as the indisputable seat of the elusive civilization. During the last two centuries, more than 2,000 volumes devoted solely to the story of Atlantis have been printed and new sites continued to be proposed. In 1968, an underwater structure was discovered on the seafloor near North Bimini in the Bahamas. Its huge rectangular stones and other architectural features, including eroded marble and a stone with tongue and groove edges, fired the imagination of Atlantiologists, but most geologists dismissed the find as an unusual natural rock formation. Also, catastrophe would not be necessary to explain the underwater location of strange zones. Since the last ice age, the sea level has risen quite enough to cover the area, even assuming the site was on dry land in ancient times. For some modern scholars, however, it is the Mediterranean island of Thera, now called Santorini which seems most likely to be the source of the Atlantis legend, if indeed the tale was inspired by a historical event. 
in about 1500 BC, the violent eruption of the Santorini volcano shattered the fertile island into three pitted isles, spewed ash over an area of more than 75,000 square miles, and generated tidal waves, possibly three or more hundred feet high, which devastated the densely populated north coast of the island of Crete some 65 miles away. Tsunamis, or giant waves, traveling as fast as 200 miles per hour, swept through the cities on the coast, but spared the capital, Konsos. Volcanic debris rained down, killing people and livestock, ruining crops, and poisoning the soil. Crete, the center of the golden age of the much-admired and influential Minoan civilization suffered irreparable damage. Although the island did not sink beneath the waves, Minoan culture went into a decline from which it never recovered. Is that the kind of catastrophe that Plato, who wrote about civilization and its ideal forms, saw as worth the retelling? Beneath the sea, on the other side of the world, lost between tides of history, Plato's Atlantis and the versions conjured up by thousands of theorists over the centuries have one thing in common, whether they may be found. They are sacred islands of marvelous beauty and inexhaustible profusion. So it was the lost kingdom of Lumeria, once widely discussed in serious scientific circles, would not long remain a featureless subcontinent, but would find adherents and would quite naturally inspire its own historians long after the presumed fact, to recount wonders of nature and marvels of civilization. It all began with a puzzle, the lemur, a quaint, round-eyed relative of the monkey, was thought in the 19th century to exist only in Madagascar, Africa, and Southeast Asia. A glance at the map shows that this habitational spread looks somewhat odd. Paleontologists, perhaps, following the dictum that the simplest answer is likely to be the most accurate one, proposed that a land bridge must once have connected India and South Africa via the island of Madagascar. Hence, the lost continent of Lumeria was, in tentative fashion, given its name. Based on the geological knowledge of the time, scientists estimated that the land bridge had disappeared from 60 to 75 million years ago. Certain apparent resemblances between South African and Indian rock formations gave added weight to the theory. The Lumerian land bridge was not the plaything of amateurs or fantastists. Darwin's most influential German adherent, the eminent zoologist Ernst Heinrich Haeckel, pondered the possibility that the human race might have its beginnings on this drowned subcontinent in the Indian Ocean. A map of Lumeria was even included in his popular History of Creation, published in 1868. Other scientific thinkers found that the concept of the Lumerian land bridge fit nicely 
with their own speculations about the prehistoric movement of large land masses. Fascination with Lumeria was not confined to scientists, however. In the latter part of the 19th century, the dynamic and irrepressible founder of Theosophy, Madame Helena Blavatsky, and her disciples began to present their theories regarding Lumeria. Although Darwin's zoologist, Haeckel, thought Lumeria was in the Indian Ocean, Blavatsky herself put it in the Pacific. It was peopled, she thought, by a third root race of the seven races she predicted for, earliest, for earthly history including the fourth on Atlantis. In the total Lumerian picture developed by Blavatsky and her disciples, we learn that native Lumerians were 27 to 30 feet tall, hermaphroditic, and in some cases capable of seeing from the back of their heads by means of a third eye. In any event, this race did not survive. In 1890, a New York newspaper published a letter that alerted fellow readers to a knowledge gap. Who can offhand draw the lines of Lumeria? It is just as much a continent as the famed Atlantis, but who knows its former place upon the globe? In 1929, effort to reconcile some of the conflicting lore, Max Heindel reported that inhabitants of Lumeria were guided more by internal perception than by external vision, for the atmosphere was so dense that objects were difficult to see. It was an epoch when the Earth's fiery crust was just beginning to harden. Man who had not yet developed speech, but he had the ability to mold his flesh and that of other creatures. Finally, an Englishman named James Churchward was to furnish more than mere topographical detail about Lumeria. In 1926, when he was in his 70s, he published The Lost Continent of Mew, the first of many volumes he would write about the vanished land. By his own account, Churchwood, while serving in India in 1868, virtually stumbled on the truth when an aged priest in a temple helped him decipher some sacred temple tablets written by Nikals, either in Burma or the motherland. They told, he wrote, how the Nikals had originally come from the motherland, the land in the center of the Pacific. Churchwood discovered that the writings of all the old civilizations, including 2,500 stone inscriptions, some 120 centuries old, found in Mexico, confirmed the tale. Survivors from Lumeria had brought the tablets to Mexico. Furthermore, Churchwood saw lithic remains of Mew on some islands of the Pacific, notably Easter Island, Mangia, Tonga Tabu, Penepe, and the Ladrone or Mariana Islands. And like those who subscribe to a more expansive form of Diffusionist thinking, he found that symbols and customs are shared in Egypt, Burma, 
India, Japan, China, South Sea Islands, Central America, South America, and some of the North American native tribes. Paradise on Earth, the immediate popularity of Churchwood's books was not to be based on anthropological hypotheses. Much more fully than Plato had described Atlantis, he pictured this earthly paradise of Mew. Luxuriant vegetation covered the whole land with a soft, pleasing, restful mantle of green. In valley places where the land was low, the rivers broadened out into shallow lakes, around whose shores myriads of sacred lotus flowers dotted the glistening surface of the water, like varicolored jewels in settings of emerald green. Over the cool rivers, gaudy-winged butterflies hovered in the shade of trees, rising and falling in fairy-like movements, as if better to view their painted beauty in nature's mirror. At the time narrated, the 64 million people were made up of ten tribes or peoples, each distinct from the other, but all under one government. The people of Mew were highly civilized and enlightened. There was no savagery on the face of the earth, nor had there ever been. The land of Mew was the mother and the center of earth's civilization, learning, trade, and commerce. All other countries throughout the world were her colonies or colonial empires. The Golden Age would not endure. After a series of earthquakes, the great island trembled and shook like the leaves of a tree in a storm. Fires from beneath the earth shot up to the heavens. Waves flooded the plains, and the populous cities were destroyed. Mew sank into an abscess of fire, and 50 million square miles of water rolled over it, becoming its burial shroud. Some few frightened survivors found themselves pitably destitute upon the scattered promontories still visible above the boiling waves. The inhabitants of today's South Sea Islands, Churchwood wrote, are the remote progeny of that handful of human beings who gazed upon a desolate world 13,000 years ago. What was the immediate consequence of loss of paradise? Churchwood may be pointing to a moral here, for as he puts it, the survivors of the highest civilization descended to the lowest savagery which has continued on through the ages. Unprepared for the harsh facts of their new life, the remnants of the ten great peoples now turned in desperation to cannibalism. Some chose to die rather than eat human flesh but others sank lower and lower until even traditions of their past, which at first were religiously kept and handed down to posterity, became dim and at last forgotten. Until Churchwood himself happened upon the tablets, no man living had described the particulars of life in the world's true cradle of civilization. Churchwood was not destined, however, to remain sole possessor of the key to understanding Lumerian lore. After all, he had not reconciled his translated historical records with the presumed geological history. His mew had inexplicably 
surfaced, not in the Indian Ocean, but thousands of miles eastward in the Pacific. Clearly, the theory of the ancient land bridge in the Indian Ocean was taken out of the hands of scientists by mystics and other romancers, who apparently gave full rein to the inspiration or the stirrings of the subconscious. Academics, furthermore, had abandoned the concept of Lumeria by the last quarter of the 19th century. For one thing, the evidence involving lemurs came to be seen as contradictory. Lemur-like remains were found in America and Europe, but lemurs today are found only in Madagascar and their neighboring Comoro Islands. Contemporary theories of prehistoric continuing movements of the great land masses indicate that no continent or enormous island ever existed in any of the sites proposed for the lost kingdom of Lumeria. In the end, it does not seem as if St. Brendan was alone in seeking out the earth's regions of promise, but the islands of the blessed. Churchwood's Mew and Plato's Atlantis are lands of escape. These cities, these orderly and preeminently peaceful cultures, are not quite like any we have seen recorded in the history of man. Theirs is the architecture of dream. It is interesting to note that tales of floating islands of misshrouded continents may have influenced the determined, highly practical luminaries of the age of exploration. One writer described their quest as follows. Always mystery lay beyond the horizon. The spirit which tried to pierce it was a questioning spirit, and embedded in mystery, as it turned out, was a continent. Men set out frail ships on the dark little known Atlantic and found continents and great civilizations that were to prove to a certain way of thinking as startling as an ancient metropolis of Atlantis or Mew. Legend was to be surpassed by the reality. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Reading Rainbow. We do hope you enjoyed our broadcast and wish you to... Come back and learn some more history with us. New broadcasts once or twice a day for as long as we can get you the information.